I just believe if God would leave the glory of heaven where he was praised 24-7, wrap himself in flesh, walk among man who would hate, despise, crucify, kill, all for the chance to save us. I just don't think praise is too much to ask. It's not too much. This is a very blessed church. You have to walk a day in my shoes to really appreciate what this church has. Not not just the spirit, the sensitivity to that spirit, but music, the singing, the anointing, the smoothness that a service is operated in. You're a blessed, a blessed people. And that is a direct result of the heartbeat desire and vision of your man of God. You are a blessed congregation. But it's not just him. I am a observer of people and um, stood back the past few services and just watched. And Wednesday night, something hit me as I was watching the first lady of this church. As she was moving around this altar and praying for people. Sister Robertson, I just watched you. Some people think I'm staring at them, but I'm not. Because usually when that happens, the Holy Ghost is talking to me. And a word came to my mind that I am convinced the Holy Ghost dropped. And it was the word anchor. Anchor. I knew what it was, but I looked it up anyways, and the definition I found was when the wind is blowing on the water and the storm is brewing, the ship will drop an anchor in the bed of the ocean. 
And regardless of how strong the winds blow and how much the storm rages, that anchor holds the ship. You're blessed to have Brother Robinson as your pastor, but you hear me, Sister Robinson, you're the anchor of this church. The storm can't get this church. You're the anchor. The winds won't blow this church. You're the anchor. Just before I did anything tonight, I just wanted to publicly say that you are blessed to have a pastor's wife as you do. Nowhere does it say pastor's wife has to sit on the front row. Okay? She's the anchor. And you ought to honor her. You should honor her. Zephaniah chapter 3 is where I draw your attention to Zephaniah, the minor prophet, Old Testament. Zephaniah chapter number 3. God wants to take us somewhere tonight, church. He wants to take us to a deeper place of worship. He he wants to take us to a, a place of praise that we've never been before. God has a higher level for this church. And He wants to take you there tonight. Not next year, tonight. Not in a few weeks, tonight. Are you hearing me? He wants to take you there tonight. The last battle that the children of Israel had to fight before taking the promised land. The last giant they had to fight was against a man named Og. You spell his name O-G, opposite of Go. And the only thing we know about the man in his is how big his bed was. So the last giant they had to fight before taking what God had for them was a giant of laziness, weariness, tiredness. God wants to take you somewhere tonight. I don't care how long this church has been around. God wants to take you somewhere tonight that you've never been. And this is how we get there. Zephaniah chapter 3. 
verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion let not thy hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Notice in verse 14, it's Zion singing. It's Israel shouting. It's Jerusalem rejoicing. It's God's people giving God praise. But in 17, God turns it around and He starts rejoicing. But He don't rejoice until the church does. Oh my. Here it is. Verse 20. At that time will I bring you again even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth. When I turn back your captivity. Verse 15. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. 17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee. Verse 20, when I turn back your captivity. I want to preach to you tonight, God in the midst of captivity. Would you lift your hands? Would you raise your voice as loud as you can? Come on, I know you can get louder than that. Oh, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you're about to do in this place, God. Thank you for what you're about to do in this house, oh God. Mm, God. 
Be seated. Before I dive off into the essence of this message tonight, just give me five minutes to explain where I feel like we are at this moment in the history of this church. I do not feel as if I'm speaking to dry bones. Because dry bones don't want revival. God caused Ezekiel to go to a valley of dry bones. We know the story. God showed him that it was many. They were scattered. They wasn't just dry, but they were very dry. And the question that God posed to Ezekiel was, can these bones live? His response was, Lord, you know. And then the Lord directed him to speak to the bones. God did not say, yes, I do know. God never answered him. He just said, speak to him. Because the only way that the bones don't live is when you stop talking to them. So he spoke to that valley. The wind began to blow. Sinews were put back together. Breath was put back into them. And what was once a valley of dry bones rose as a mighty army. I do not believe I'm preaching to a valley of dry bones. Dry bones don't shout. 
Dry bones don't run the aisles. Dry bones don't clap their hands. I, I believe that we are past the dry bones issue. I believe that the breath has come back. The wind has blew again. But usually that's where we stop reading that 37th chapter is when the bones come back together. Then we go somewhere else. But stay there just a moment. And you'll find that God comes to Ezekiel again and God tells Ezekiel to take two sticks. Take a stick for Judah. Take a stick for Joseph. And put them together to make one stick. And when we get to chapter 38, there is a battle that the very ones who used to be dead and dry are now engaged to fight. It's a battle against, against a people of Gog, G-O-G. The word Gog means mountain. When you leave 38 and you get to 39, then we, we get to the tabernacle and, and we get to the presence of God. But, but between, between the presence of God, there is a mountain that God's people have to fight. In other definitions of God, it, it signifies a roof or, or a covering. In other words, it's a barrier. It's, it's, something that, it's something that wants to lock you in. Oh, God have mercy. And the reason why God told Ezekiel to take the two sticks is because the only way to defeat the barrier, the only way to move the mountain. The only way to win that battle and get to God's presence is when you put the sticks together. Judah means praise. But Joseph means increase. So when you put the sticks together, you get an increase of praise. It took one type of praise to get the bones moving again. It took one type of praise to get the wind blowing again. It took one type of praise to resurrect an army again. But it took a new level of praise to move mountains. I'm not preaching to a valley of dry bones. We are past that place. But you hear me? Before we get what God wants us to have, the praise of this church needs to go to another level. We can't have the same handful shouting and the same few dancing and the same couple rejoicing. No, we need to increase the praise. We got mountains to move. We got barriers to move. We got walls to fall. Come on. We got battles to fight. We got a city to reach. And you can't do it on a 40-year-old praise. You got to get up. 
You got to make it bigger. You got to make it stronger. You got to increase your praise. So if you're used to clapping 10 seconds, uh, you clap 20 seconds. Uh, If you're used to running around the building one time, you do it three times. Uh, If you're used to dancing just a few minutes, uh, you make it even longer. You got to increase your praise. You want this revival? You want this mountain moved? You want this barrier conquered? Increase your praise. Increase your praise. That's where we are. Come on, we need some of you people that don't jump to get to jumping. Some of you people that don't rejoice, get to rejoicing. Some of you people that like to just sit there and do nothing, you got to get out of that. There's mountains in your life. There's mountains in your home. There's mountains in your family. There's mountains in your church. There's mountains in your city. There's mountains to conquer. And you can't do it preaching to dead bones. You only do it by increasing your praise. Come on, before we move on, take a moment and praise God. Before I go further, take your praise higher. Come on, get your praise up. Get your praise up. You're no longer a valley full of dead bones. Get your praise up. You're no longer scattered. Get your praise up. You're no longer dead. Get your praise up. Be seated if there is a lesson to be learned in the Old Testament. Many can be learned, but if there is one that just leaps from the pages of the Old Testament, it is the fact that regardless of what God does, regardless of how many prayers He answers and how many ways He makes, people are prone to fall. 
as long as there is flesh hanging on these bones, it's a die daily walk with God. Salvation is not a date on the calendar. Salvation is a process. And until you hear, well done, ain't none of us saved. Just look at the role of the leading men and women in those 39 books. Look at their failures. They're, they're right in front of us. No, no hiding from their failures. Look at Abraham. Yes, he may have been the friend of God and the father of the faithful, but he was also a liar that twice told his wife, tell the people you're my sister. No matter what God did, he was going to fall, was Abraham. Look at Jacob. Yes, he may have been the heel grabber and the one that got the name change and, and the one that the one that became the one that became a wrestler with God. But before all of that, he was a deceiver and a conniver and someone you could not trust. Moses may have been God's delivering man but he was also a fugitive that ran for his life and hid from the call for 40 years failure after failure after failure yeah David may have been the man after God's own heart he was also an adulterous man he was also the man that slept with another man's wife and then plotted the death of her husband yes yes Solomon may have been the wisest of them all but he was also the one that married an Egyptian which led to him falling in love with other women which led to his downfall and his demise it just repeats itself Book after book, just read the book of Judges. Every time God's people came out of judgment, uh, they would backslide in their sins and go back to their misery that made them call out to God again and God would bring them out and no sooner did they come out they would just go right back because God's people throughout those 39 books uh, always was looking behind them and never in front of them. That's why they told Moses for 40 years, take us back. But never did they say, lead us on. Just failure after failure after failure. That's why one of the greatest revelations that man can get, one of the greatest revelations man can understand, came from the mouth of Jeremiah when he said, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. He said man cannot do it by himself. Man's heart is deceitful above all things. So you can't trust your heart. The tongue is full of deadly poison. So you can't trust your tongue. Your feet is swift to run to mischief. So you can't trust your feet. You can't trust your heart. You can't 
trust your tongue. You can't trust your feet. That's why you can't save yourself. That's why you can't pick and choose what kind of what kind of way of salvation you get to know. That's why you need a God. That's why you need a Savior. That's why we got some blood. That's why we got a cross. That's why we got redemption. That's why we got grace. That's why we got mercy. That's why we got a name. That's why we got Holy Ghost. Because it's not in man. So it is with this backdrop, stay with me, we're going somewhere that the stage is set for what we get from the book of Zephaniah. His prophecy unfolds while Josiah is king. When Josiah took the throne, idolatry had been restored back back in Judah. Both people and priests were worshiping false gods. Images that had been removed was placed back up. The poor were ruthlessly oppressed. Evil had become the norm. Judah was so far from where God destined them to be that there was no difference from God's people and the enemy to God's people. So the only hope they had, the only deliverance possible, the only change of both lives and hearts would have to come through a God-sent revival. And when I look at where God's people were then and I see where God's people are now, it's not rhetoric, it's reality. We have got to have a move of God. We need more than just revival. We need a move of God. We need a move of the Holy Ghost. We need a stirring. We need a shaking. Most of all, we need a changing. Come on, do you believe it? We gotta have a move of God. We, we, there is no option. There, there is no other alternative. There is no other loophole. We have got to have a heaven sent, God sent, Holy Ghost move of God. Come on, not one worked up, but one prayed down. Not one sang up, but one praised down. Not one moved, come on. Not one moved up, but one worshiped down. We gotta have it. We got lost loved ones. We got a lost world. We got a lost nation. We're divided. We're confused. We don't even know who's president. We gotta have a move of God. We gotta have a move of God. Believe me, you're not hearing from a virgin voice tonight. I've been around the block a time or two. I've, I've seen it. I've, I've, I've witnessed it. And when I see where we are now, we as the church, we as God's people, when I see where we are and I look at the pages of the Bible and see where we should be, It becomes reality. we got to have a move of God. The Bible says that his spirit in the last days would be poured out 
upon all flesh. And if you don't think we're in the last days, you're crazy. We're in the last days. So why isn't the Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh? That's where we should be. They that do know their God shall be strong and shall do exploits. That's where we should be. Come on. Greater things than these, Jesus said, shall you do. That's where we should be. The latter house shall be greater than the former. That's where we should be. Planted eyes should be opening. Deaf ears should be unstopping. Lame should be walking. Dumb should be talking. Deliverance should be evident. If you think it's God's will for you to have revival a couple of weeks out of the year when an evangelist shows up, you're badly mistaken. God wants you in revival on Wednesday and on Sunday morning and on Sunday night. I tell you what, the will of God, it's not his will that any perish, but all come to repentance. He wants someone being baptized every time you show up to church. He wants lives being changed at every prayer meeting. He wants hearts being touched at every outreach session. He wants, come on, he wants to change lives when you're practicing your songs. He wants to change lives. Come on, come on, when you're, when you're, when you're selling pumpkin rooms. He wants to change lives 24-7. That's his will. That's his intent. That's his desire. That's his determination. where we should be. Revivals continuing on should not be abnormal. It's where we should be. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is and so much the more. As you see the day approaching, that means the closer to the coming of God we get, the more we should be in church, the more we should be having revival, the more we should be in God's house. So why is it the opposite? Three services a week was too much, so we took out Sunday night and called it family night and then wonder why families are falling apart and now two services a week has become too much for for some and so we just got Sunday morning and then got the audacity to ask God why our altars aren't fruitful and our baptistries aren't full and why revival's not moving and why God's not. When I see where we are compared to where we should be. And 
the answer to, to why we're not there is because we still got people that has personal agendas and people who still has alternative motives and people who still think it's all about them and not about a move of God. And so God has to clean the church up before he can save the world. Come on, baby, 3,000 souls were not added. In Acts chapter 2, unto the 120, who was the church, got their act together first. We still got people that get upset when they're not called on to preach or they're not acknowledged when they clean the church. We still got people, come on, who thinks who thinks nothing should be done to the church because it's been like this for 40 years and so we just need to keep it like this because if you change the pictures on the wall, we get mad. My God, I didn't think this was about pictures on a wall. I thought it was about souls going to hell. When did that change? I tell you when it changed, when we made church about us, when we made church about me, when we made church about my flesh being petted and my way being done. Come on, let me tell you what will fix all that junk. A Holy Ghost sent move of God. I tell you what will burn that stuff up. Holy Ghost fire. I tell you what will rebuke that stuff. The power of God coming and showing up and doing its thing. That's why we need God. That's why we need worshipers. That's why we need praisers. That's why we need rejoicers. In this, in the first chapter, the first descriptions of Josiah's reign, we are told he was a man that turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. So if we're going to have this kind of revival I'm preaching about, we got to have some sold out people. Not people up and down. In and out. But people that's got their feet firm on the rock. Someone wrote a song that we need to resurrect the words to. I got my foot on the rock and my mind's made up. Though I walk through a lowly valley or I drink from a better cup, when the devil comes knocking, showing me an easier way, I stand flat on my feet. I throw my head in the air and I say my foot's on the rock and my mind's made up. Is there anybody in Lafayette with that as for me spirit? Do what you want to, but as for me, we're going to have revival. Go where you wish, but as for me, we're going to stay faithful to where God put us. Believe what you shall, but as for me, we're going to still believe in one Lord, in Jesus' name, baptism, and a Holy Ghost outpouring. As for me, we're going to prayer room. As for me, we're going to shout. As for me, 
we're going to dance. As for me, we're going to worship. As for me, we're going to get a hold of God. His first act in office, the first thing Josiah did was repair the breaches of the house of the Lord. Say what you will, but the fact is we've allowed some stuff to get in God's house that God never intended to be there. And it's not God's fault We've allowed worldliness to creep in the church. Carnality to creep in the church. And it's not God's fault. The Bible said that he, God, would be a wall of fire around the church. God won't let worldliness in. God won't let carnality in. God won't let bitterness and jealousy in. God won't let hatred and envy in. So how did that stuff get in? Prayerless saints. Money-loving preachers. People that care more about their substance than giving to God's people and giving to God's church and giving to God's substance. That's how that stuff got in here. And Josiah said, I'm wasting my time trying to get God to move as long as this house is dirty. So the first thing we're going to do is clean the house up. We need to start repairing some stuff that we've allowed people and life to bring in. And while this repairing is taking place, this is how it happened. Helkiah finds the book of the law that others had hid to build their own personal kingdoms. He brings it out. He tells Josiah about it. Josiah says, get the men of Judah. Get all Jerusalem. Get the prophets. Get the priests. Open up the book and start reading. Because if there is anything that's going to clean the house, if there is anything that's going to Prepare the Torah house. It's when we open the book and preach the word of God. Let me help you with this. John, the Bible said, came walking out of a wilderness after 400 years of silence. And when he walks out of the wilderness, He's wearing camel's hair. He's wearing a leathern girdle. He's eating locusts and wild honey. But the Bible said he began to preach to them. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And regardless, hear me, hear me, regardless of how silent and how long the silence was, regardless of what the man was wearing and what the man was eating, he preached. And the Bible said all of Jerusalem came to him. All of Jordan came to him. All of that region came to him. And every one of them was baptized. You better hear me. He did not have a church building, but he had revival. He did not have a microphone, but he had revival. He did not have a media team, but he had revival. He had no PA system, but he had revival. He had no Sunday school teachers, but he had revival. He had no ushers, but he had revival. He had no trustees, but he had revival. He had no deacons, but he had revival. He had no worship leader, but he had revival. He had no music, but he had revival. He had no programs, but he had revival. He did not have everything that we think we need to have revival, but he had revival anyhow. Why? Because the man was preaching the word of God and nothing moves men like preaching. Nothing stirs men like preaching. Nothing brings revival like preaching. Yeah, do everything as well as you can. But you hear me, they may not remember what you sing. They may not remember how well you sang it. They may not remember how nice the music is. But they will never forget the feeling. The tugging, the stirring that only comes when a man preaches the word of God because it's still preaching that God chose to save them that are lost. If God chose it, we need more of it. If God chose it, we need more of it. If God chose it. So here's what happens with Zephaniah. He's a prophet, a true God-called prophet, not self-proclaimed prophet. Let me help you. If they got to call themselves a prophet, they're not. Zephaniah, he's a prophet, so he can see what's coming down the road. He's got this insight that man cannot direct his own steps. And so in spite of this Josiah revival, he knew the day would come when God's people would do what they've always done, fall. Zephaniah knew this. 
He understood the way flesh is made up. And how flesh can feel good for a moment. And when in that good feeling they think they've won the victory. And so they don't pray like they should. And they don't give like they should. And they're not faithful like they should. And they wind up going right back. And so with this failure, with, with with this falling, God, hear me, hear me. God takes his people into Babylonian captivity. Not the devil. Not hell. Not politician. God took his people into captivity. In fact, both Jeremiah and Josiah preached to the people that they needed to turn from their ways. They preached to them. Every time Jeremiah preached, he said, turn, go back to where you should be. Repent, get back on fire to God. Get get back in love with God. And the people sat there with their hands in their pocket, looking at the watch because he went too long. Complaining about everything going on in their life and not listening to his words. I know the feeling. Because this, this people had this false concept Oh God, you better hear me. Had this false concept that just because they were God's people, they were exempt from trouble. I don't need to listen to Jeremiah. I don't I don't need to listen to prophets. I, I don't need to listen to I don't need to listen to, to Josiah. I'm I'm God chosen. God, God brought me out. God cleaned my life up. I'm, I'm the apple of God's eye. He won't bring judgment on me. And they sit there in their unrepentant state, in their hard hearts, and their ears became deaf to the preacher because they thought it won't happen here. And so God shows up and God says, well, if Jeremiah can't do it, if Josiah can't do it, if my preachers can't do it, I guess I gotta come in and stir it up myself. And I've just noticed that not only I, but several preachers the past few years have been preaching Jeremiah's sermons. We got to get back to revival. We got to get back to prayer meetings. We we got to get back to having a move of God. We got to get back to where we once was. We got to go back, come on, to all night prayer meetings. We we got to go back to fasting chains. We got to go back to spiritual warfare. We preached it and we preached it and we preached it. But just like Jeremiah, I've watched people just sit there saying, I'm fourth generation Pentecost. I'm third generation Holy Ghost filled. I'm fifth, sixth generation steep into this thing. It won't happen to me. 
And there is a spirit that the world has gotten the past 10 years that's crept into the church. It's a spirit of entitlement. Well, I've never left the church. I don't mean to do all that praying. I've never backslid. I ain't got to do all that fasting. I'm a, I'm a preacher's kid. I, I was born and raised in this. I, I don't have to do all that worshiping. Come on. And they've sat there unmoved, unchanged, unchallenged because they was foolish enough to think it won't happen to them. So I've stood back in 2020 and I'm just wondering if God had to send his people into captivity in order to make them a great nation then. Could it be that God has allowed and even orchestrated all the chaos in this year, all the stuff that's happened this year in order to bring his people into captivity for the purpose of changing our ways. You can blame it on Trump. You can blame it on Biden. You can blame it on Democrats. They blame it on China. But it all crossed God's desk before it happened. Come on, the preacher tried, but we didn't listen. So if the preacher can't do it, God has stepped in. Not for the destruction, but for the deliverance from where we've been. Come on, because the fact is, some of us are praying more now. Some of us are coming to church more now. Some of us are living for God better now. Come on, I'm going somewhere. You gotta stay with me. Albert Barnes commentary says of this captivity it would have been a strong place against the inroads of the Medro Persian Empire the Persians saw it its value so far from military purposes as to build some fort there and the emperor Claudius when he had made it a colony felt the importance of the well chosen situation here what Mr. Barnes says it is it is replaced by Mosul a city of some 20 to 40 thousand inhabitants even after its destruction, it was easier. It was easier. It was easier to rebuild it than to build a city on the opposite bank. It was easier to rebuild. It was easier to rebuild than to build new because revival is always easier after the destruction. 
So it may seem as up to now, as up to our text, that Zephaniah is a horrible book where God's going to wipe out his people. But you've got to carry Zephaniah's name with you throughout his book because his name means he whom Jehovah protects and has hid. I know it's looked bad. I know it's looked bleak. I know now we're confused and we're divided and they're saying COVID is getting worse and worse. But you hear this preacher in it all. There's been a remnant of the church that God has protected and behind the scenes he's been working on some stuff. It may have been hid but it's about to be revealed. This thing called revival is about to burn like a wildfire that the whole nation and the world is going to watch unfold. I know, I know it's been captivity, but God has been in the middle of it all. Because God has always been in the midst of captivity. You don't believe me? Let me pass the mic down to Joseph. And Joseph will preach to you. God was with me when my brothers hated me. God was with me when they sold me as a slave. God was with me in Potiphar's house. God was with me in the prison. God was with me in the palace. God's always been in the middle of captivity. You don't believe him? Let's hand the mic down to Daniel and he'll testify. God was with me when they threw me in that den of lions because God always been in the midst of captivity. If Daniel don't do it for you, hear the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God was with me in the fiery furnace. You don't believe him? Ask Paul and Silas. God was with me in the jailhouse. You don't believe him? Ask John. God was with me on the Alapatmos because God has always been in the midst of captivity. Zephaniah was the great, great grandson of Hezekiah. Hezekiah name means Jehovah has strengthened. So Zephaniah reached back to some old power. And the one thing that Hezekiah did beyond restoring the temple, beyond opening the doors to God's house, beyond 
removing idolatry. Hear me. The one thing Hezekiah did that's given 19 verses about is Hezekiah restored worship. So in Zephaniah, the great-great-grandson shows up in the middle of captivity. He reached back to what Hezekiah did in his captivity. He said, I know how we're going to fix this. We're going to reach back and resurrect some old ways of worship. So Zephaniah said, we're not going to pout. We're not going to be full of fear. We're not going to be worried. We're not going to stay up at night. Here is how we fix captivity. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Come on, Zephaniah said, this is how we handle trouble. This is how we handle captivity. We worship. We rejoice. We sing. We praise. We magnify. We glorify. We get happy. I know I'm going to OT tonight, but you just hang on. We, we going somewhere. God wants to take us up to a new level. Increase the praise. Zephaniah said, God's people sing, shout, rejoice. That's in verse 14. But when we step into verse 17, He says, the Lord, thy God, in the midst of thee, is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice. Come on. His message was, if you want to get God moving, church, you got to get to moving first. God will rejoice, but not until you sing. God will rejoice, but not until you shout. God will rejoice, but not until you move. I need to illustrate 
what all this rejoicing is about. See, I can just end it here and we rejoice, but there's a reason for the words of Zephaniah. So I need some help tonight. Let me get the carter. Would you help me? Come up here. Go through wherever you are. Well, you got a crying baby. That's okay. Just, just stand right here. Carter, just stand right there. The rejoice in verse 14 has a different definition than the rejoice in verse 17. Go look it up if you don't believe me. The rejoice in verse 14, talking about the church, means to jump up and down and clap your hands. Hold on. Well, the carter is going to represent the church. So Zephaniah says, you're in trouble. You're in captivity. You're in the middle of a pandemic. You're in the middle of, an, of, a, of a nation that's arguing. You only won because you cheated. No, I won because I got all the votes. Zephaniah said, okay, you're in the middle of that. Here's how you handle it. You jump up and down. And you clap your hands. That's your response. That's what you do. That's how you handle it. That's how you deal with it. That's how you live through it. You don't whine. You don't cry. You don't moan. You rejoice. You shout. You sing. You get happy. It gets better. That's verse 14, rejoice. Come out here. Then you get verse 17, where God begins to rejoice. He's, he's played God for me before, so he's very used to this. The rejoice in verse 14 with the church means to jump and clap. But the rejoice in verse 17 means to run in circles. So, so this is what happens when God looks at the church and the church starts jumping and the church starts clapping. God in the midst of thee rejoices. So God takes off running around the church. If you will, God will. If you will, God will. If you will, God will. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Don't take this away yet. It gets better. 
and we're about to blow up tonight. Why would this happen? Because in the middle of all the trouble and all the chaos and all the captivity, there's a devil. Jonathan David, be my devil. So, so why would God run around the church? Why would God rejoice when the church rejoices? Because there's a devil that always wants to attack the church. There's a devil that wants to bring division. There's a devil that wants to stop revival. There's a devil that wants to disrupt the move of God. But when God sees the church start rejoicing and God starts running around the church every time the devil tries to get his hands on the church he always bumps up against God he always runs up against God he always meets God the devil can't touch the church that rejoices hell can't stop a church that praises hell can't defeat a church that sings hell won't stop a church that shouts If you want God to protect you, get to moving. If you want God to save you, get to moving. If you want God to fight for you, get to moving. If you want God to preserve you, you got to move. You got to move. You got to move. Pentecost. This is how we handle pandemics. This is how we handle division. This is how we handle chaos. We shout. We rejoice. We sing. We have revival. We have a move of God. Come on, church, I'm waiting on you now. Rejoice. I'm waiting on you now. Sing. I'm waiting on you. Come on. God's waiting on you now. Shout. 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 If you will, God will. If you will, God will. 